Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for uh, these, these friends, these brothers and sisters, uh, and the opportunity that we have right now uh, just to learn, uh, to learn from you, uh, to be transformed by you, uh, and maybe just fall in love all over again, uh, the gospel of your grace. Uh, we confess, Lord, that we need your word, and we need each other. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation on all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so typically uh, here we go through books of the Bible or we go through line by line doing what we call exegesis, right? Uh, if you know what exegesis is, basically we dig into a text, we sort of pull it apart, uh, and then we apply it to our lives and to our context. Uh, we're going to start a new uh, series next week uh, through uh, the book of First Timothy. First Timothy, I think it'll be a great time. We're going to learn a ton together. Uh, but from time to time, we do sort of these standalone uh, sermons that are related to uh, maybe some of our distinctives or some of our values to reinforce who we are as a church and what we believe uh, God has called us to. And so uh, just as a refresher, um, you guys have heard this in various forms uh, throughout the months. Uh, if you're new here, this will be your first time hearing this, but, but uh, here's our mission as a church. Our mission as a church, which is, comes from the scriptures, is this, that formed by the gospel, King's Cross Church exists to make wholehearted disciples of Jesus who are united and living for the glory of God, the growth of one another, and the good of others in the everyday stuff of life. That's our mission. That's why we exist as a church. Now, in order to accomplish this mission, we need to be a people of the book. We need to be a people who are grounded in the scriptures, a church that is grounded in the Bible. And look, in our quick changing culture where, uh, you know, cultural scholars, they call this moment, this moment that we live in right now, this cultural moment, they call it a post-Christian culture. In our quickly changing culture, I think it's more important than ever for Christians to have firsthand knowledge of their Bibles. And this is why we're passionate uh, at this church about what we call biblical literacy. We're committed to coming alongside you and helping you learn how to read the Bible, how to understand its meaning, how to apply it uh, to our, our daily lives and the everyday stuff of life, right? And look, one of the things I love about this church community is that, that we have a ton of people who uh, are either have joined us, uh, who previously uh, had zero faith background at all, right? They had no church background, no faith background at all, or uh, they were, were very, uh, uh, maybe like grew up in the church, but have, have walked away for quite some time. And so we understand that um, getting, uh, learning something like how to read the Bible can be an intimidating uh, act for some. And so we're committed to helping you learn how to read it, understand it, and then uh, apply it. 
You see that happen uh, here on Sunday in some form or fashion. Uh, you also see this especially in our home groups where it's more of a traditional Bible study where we kind of work through passages of Scripture uh, together. Um, but I want to set some time aside before we dive into 1 Timothy to talk about just why we need the Bible at all. All right? And so here's our first point looking in Matthew chapter 5 is that we need the Bible because we need the authority of the Bible. We need the authority of the Bible. Where do we see this? Now look at the words of Jesus in verse 18. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, just to be clear, when Jesus uses that word law, he's using a shorthand to refer to the whole scriptures, okay? God's law is another way of saying the Bible, the scriptures, right? And so he's saying, hey, look, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from all the scriptures until all is accomplished. Now, we're going to zero in on this verse and see that Jesus is at least saying two things about the Bible in this single verse. The first thing is that the Bible is inspired by God. It is inspired by God. Uh, look at verse 18 again when he says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Now, when he says heaven and earth pass away, I don't want you to get worried, all right? This isn't like a Thanos snap type of deal, right? Like he's talking about how God is going to make all things new. He's talking about the end of all evil, the end of all suffering. When he talks about how heaven and earth pass away, he's talking about how heaven is not what uh, ultimately like how God wants it to be at the end of all time, right? It doesn't have us save sinners in it, right? The earth is obviously broken. It's fallen. It's not as God wants it to be. So there's going to come a time where heaven and earth will pass away. It'll be made new because of Jesus, and that's what he's talking about here. Here's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1. The apostle Peter says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains, how long? Forever. The word of the Lord remains forever. In other words, nature itself can pass away, but the scriptures never will. And look, if nature can pass away, and the scriptures will not because, like, the reason that they won't is because they, they, they transcend nature. They, they endure beyond nature. That tells us that, that this book, the scriptures, is not a natural book. It is supernatural in the truest and fullest sense of that word. Some people will say, like, look, the Bible, we believe it's a great book, but it's just another human book like, like any other not according to the words of Jesus here in verse 18. He says it transcends nature. And here's the, here's the wild thing about the Bible, is what, what sets it apart, is that when we say the Bible is inspired by God, well, we're saying that it is a book that is written by God through humans. That's what we mean. So the book, all the pages of the scriptures are are inspired by God. In other words, they are, are written by God through humans. So it wasn't a collaboration. It wasn't like, 
like God got together, uh, you know, it's not like they had that, we're at this like board meeting, right? Where like God and some angels and some people were present. It wasn't a collaboration. It wasn't a human writing a rough draft and then God goes over it with a red pen to edit it. It wasn't God giving ideas to humans and then them having to figure out, okay, how do I put this into words? It wasn't dictated to humans like, uh, like Muslims believe about the Quran or like Mormons believe about their holy books. It's not human writings that become spiritual when readers suddenly find meaning in them, uh, like many of the Eastern religions. That's what they believe. It's not one of many religious books that we get to pick and choose from, like, like some biblical critics claim. No, it is written by people, real people, who were prepared and called by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, for this very task. And they wrote according to their own personalities. They wrote according to their own circumstances, but they wrote in a way that mysteriously communicates the very word of God and communicates all that he wants us to know about who he is, about who we are, and about what it means to know his glory and to attain salvation, to live in this world. That is the doctrine of inspiration, and it's, it's nothing short of magical. Now, human authors of the Bible include kings, peasants, scholars, fishermen, philosophers, poets. There's a, at least one doctor. It covers genres like history, law, songs, poetry. It's got travel diaries, family trees, legal documents, love letters, letters of encouragement, letters of instruction, and all of it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says in verse 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Well, here's the other principle we see from Jesus in, in uh, our, our passage not only is the Bible inspired by God, but it is wholly inspired, right? W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. It is wholly and completely inspired. Look again at, at verse 18. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, an iota is, is like the smallest possible, uh, uh, like, H, H sound letter in, in the language uh, written at the time. It's like the size of a comma, right? A dot, uh, a dot is a part of a letter, almost like, you, you know the difference between like a serif font and a sans serif font, right? Like how the serif fonts have these little things at the, at the, at the corners of them, right? You know what I'm talking about. So uh, a part of a letter, a serif, uh, like that's, that's what is meant by the dot. Right? It's this Greek word, keraya, and, and that's what that is. It's a dot in the words of Jesus here, a dot. He's referring to a part of a letter. It's just a stroke of a pen. Like it's, it's the difference between what makes a lowercase b and a lowercase d. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, not even the smallest letter or not even a part of a letter can be disregarded. 
He's saying not only is the Bible inspired by God's very breath, but every letter and every part of every letter is inspired too. And so it's more than the Holy Spirit putting ideas into the mind of human authors who did their very darndest best to put it into words, right? Like, like Dumbledore's Pensieve, if you've seen, if you're familiar with the, the Harry Potter books, right? Where he takes out his memory, you take his memory out, you put it in this bowl, and then you, you, you jump into it, and you kind of experience this, and then you got to come out and interpret that, right? Like, no, that's not what's happening here. We believe that God inspired their very pen, that we, he, we believe his inspir, inspiration comes through their pen uh, in the exact words that he intended to be preserved, and so when we say that his word is wholly inspired, we're saying that there's no part of the Bible, not even a part of the letter that we don't believe is there by God's intention. In other words, there's no single part of the Bible that we don't believe. There's no single part of the Bible where we can say, like, <clears throat> I don't like that part, right? There's no part where we get to say, I don't want that. I won't teach that. I won't obey that. By the way, if, I don't know if you knew this, but that's what, that's what Thomas Jefferson did. Uh, third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> he was an agnostic deist, which basically he, be he like believed in some general deity, some general God, uh, but didn't believe that like he really cared about us or that we should care about him. <clears throat> and Thomas Jefferson, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> he, even though he was an agnostic deist, he had a lot of appreciation for and affinity for the scriptures. What he did is he sat down in the White House with a razor in one hand and a Bible in the other, and he sliced out all the bits and pieces that he didn't like. So convenient, right? <laughs> but look, at that point, at that point, the Bible is not an authority in your life in any sense of that word. It's not your authority. You are. If you're the one who gets to pick and choose what you'll take and what you won't, then the Bible can't be your authority. You're your authority. And look, if we're going to take any of it at all, we need to take the whole. We don't get to ignore the parts that seem outdated or confusing. What we do when we come to parts that are outdated or confusing or that seem that way, apparently, is we press in, right? We do the work of exegesis. We dig in and we pull it apart. We seek how do we apply this to our daily lives. We don't get to ignore the parts that are uncomfortable and unchallenging. No, we're to submit to them. By the way, this, is, this doctrine is called <clears throat> verbal plenary inspiration, right? Verbal plenary inspiration. Now, look, I know those are big words, all right? I know those are big words, but they're important, okay? And it's important that you know that this is what we believe at King's Cross Church. We believe in the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal meaning... <clears throat> Verbal meaning the very words of scripture, not just the big ideas, are the words of God. They're the words of the Bible. Plenary meaning whole, the whole Bible, down to the very letters. An inspiration, which tells us that it's the Holy Spirit of God revealing God's truth to us. In other words, this book is a miracle. And by the way, that is a profound countercultural statement to make today, that you can know God's truth. I don't know if, like how well you're paying attention or how well acquainted you are with the culture that we live in right now, but, but that statement that we can know truth uh, is an unpopular statement to make these days. 
celebrities, you'll always, you'll always find them talking about like telling your truth, right? Complimenting each other. Hey, man, I'm so glad you told your truth, right? Little hot tip. The whole idea that we can't know truth is born out of a movement uh, in the last half century called postmodernism, which says, hey, look, you've got your truth, I've got my truth, and there's no such thing as the truth, all right? Truth is in, is in here, and it's not out there. Truth is not something that we can know objectively. It's something that we have to decide for ourselves, decide kind of what works, make our own truth. Now, why is it important for us to have this view of the Bible, of verbal plenary inspiration, where we see it as receiving God's truth in the Bible? Because look, if you want to follow Jesus, and hopefully you do, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to have his view of the Bible. You need to understand the scriptures the way that, that, that he did. You don't get to say, look, I, I follow Christ, but I just can't do the Bible thing. Like, I don't want to read it or come under its authority. It might be popular today, that position, but it's wildly inconsistent. And you don't get to say, I follow Christ, but not what the Bible says about sex or money or getting drunk or high or how, to, how I'm supposed to do good to my neighbor or how I'm supposed to live on, on mission. Uh, theologian John Piper addresses why we find the Bible so hard to swallow sometimes. He says, our problem is not there is in, that there is insufficient light shining from the scriptures, but our problem is that we love the darkness. See, I think that sometimes the reason we have a hard time with the scriptures is not because of the content itself, but because of the way that it challenges our character. And look, if you are the kind of person who wants to say Jesus is Lord, then man, like, you need to follow him as Lord. And when you say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not about these scriptures over here and not about that scripture over there, what you're saying is, look, there are things in my life that I'm just not going to let Jesus have. And at that point, you can't call him your Lord and Savior in any sense. And so we need the authority of the scriptures. We need an objective authority to speak into our selfish, uh, compartmentalized, warped ways of thinking. All right? Number two, we also need the hero of the Bible. We need the capital H hero of the Bible. And so we just talked about how the Bible as a whole is inspired by God and has authority over our lives. But what is the Bible actually about, right? What is the Bible actually comprised of? All the authors, nations, timelines, people, places, stories, commands, poems, songs. Like, like what, is it, what is it? What is the content? Is it an instruction manual? Is it a history record? Is it a biographical sketch? Look, I'll tell you the point of the Bible. The point is, the big idea is the central message of this library collection of books, because again, the Bible is 66 books in one. And the central message of this library of books is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. From the very beginning in Genesis 1 to the very end in Revelation 22, like it's all about Jesus. Jesus is like the big E on the I chart, right? 
You can't miss it. In verse 17, it's, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What Jesus is saying is he's saying that all the scriptures that have been written so far are all about himself. And so he's saying, like, when the prophets wrote, when, when, they were, when they wrote in the Old Testament, what they were doing was they were predicting his life. They were predicting his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Or as one author said, Ed Clowning, he says, the Old Testament is promises of the Lord's coming. The New Testament announces that the Lord has come. That's simply what it is. Old Testament is all about the promises about Jesus that are coming. The New Testament is about how those promises have already been fulfilled. And look, this is important. This is one of our distinctive values as a church here at King's Cross. One of our values here is is what we call being gospel-centered or being Christ-centered. And what we mean by that is that we see the whole point of the Bible as uh, is, is to point to and to expand on the good news that's found in Jesus. That's the point of the scriptures. It also means that in all of our worship services, in all of our ministries, in all of our studies and retreats, in all of it, we're all going to make sure that all of them are pointing, uh, that we're pointing each other to the message of salvation through Christ alone. Now, this being gospel-centered, it distinguishes us from fundamentalist churches uh, over on the right who uh, have an over-emphasis on the commands and the law, Uh, and it also uh, distinguishes us from liberal mainline churches uh, on the left who maybe deny the power of sin and and thereby diminish the gospel of grace. But I I I want to explain something here that Jesus said. You see, when Jesus said he came to fulfill the scriptures, that word fulfill there in in the Greek is plerao, which means to complete or to fill it to the very full. I know that's clunky English, but like to fill it to the very full, like think about it like that line in Top Ramen, right? Uh, like when you, when you fill it up to the, to the line in the little styrofoam cup and it says fill up to here, right? Or like instant oatmeal, right? Or mac and cheese, like it has that same line. Like that's what it means to fill it to the full. And so that means two things for us. On the one hand, it tells us that since Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament writings, some of it, some of it no longer applies to us in the same way that it did to the Old Testament community because Jesus fulfilled it, right? He completed it. For example, like a lot of the laws in the Old Testament, if you've ever done a Bible reading plan and you're reading like all these laws about like what to eat and what to wear and you're like, what the, like this is in here, right? Like all of those laws, the point of those were to separate God's people, his nation from the surrounding pagan communities, um, like back then, like borders were nebulous, right? They didn't, like it was hard to have a national identity outside of what you ate and what you wore and how you spoke, right? And so it was a way for, for God to separate his people from surrounding pagan communities, for, for them to be able to say, hey, look, we are set apart by the Lord and for the Lord. And see, that doesn't apply to us anymore because the Bible teaches us that now we are set apart by the Holy Spirit who indwells in us. This is also why we don't do animal sacrifices anymore, right? Right? Like, look, why don't we do animal sacrifices anymore like they did in the Old, Old Testament? Um, 
Uh, I mean, one, because it's like illegal uh, most places, but Jesus is also the sacrifice of all sacrifices, right? That's what the Bible tells us. He's the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. He's the Lamb of God. You see, the point of those sacrifices in the Old Testament was to teach the Old Testament community about the way that atonement works. That in order for your sins to be forgiven, blood needs to be spilled. It was to communicate something to them about the wickedness of their sin, to, to sort of jar them awake with, oh my gosh, like, like our, our sin causes such, such violence, something so horrible, so that when Jesus would be announced as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, that would mean something. On the other hand, it also means that the Old Testament writings cannot be ignored. In a very real sense, they still count. They still mean something. For example, some of the laws, like the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, they do still apply to God's people today, right? Plus, if we want a clearer picture of who Jesus is as the hero of the Bible, then we, we need a better grasping of the Old Testament with all of its characters and its timelines and all the dramas. Understanding how it all fits together will help us to a greater degree understand the significance of who Jesus is and what it means that he's the Messiah of the world. There's a helpful analogy from Tim Keller where, where he, in this sermon, starts listing all the ways that Jesus is truer and better than, than all the major characters of the Old Testament. Um, and and when, he, when he says that, that analogy, he talks about how uh, we should think about it like, like, a, like a cup being filled with water. How Jesus is the water and the Old Testament is the cup. He says, the cup doesn't do much for you when it's empty, but the water can't be grasped and drunk without the cup. The cup gives it its form and helps you grasp it. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you want to understand who I am and why I came, you need to know the Old Testament. The point of everything from the laws and regulations to the ceremonies and sacrifices is to show us Jesus. In that sermon, Keller says this, he says, Jesus is the real rock of Moses. He's the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, perfect, uh, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible's really not about you. It's about him. That's how you read the Old Testament with an eye for Christ in the gospel. We need the Bible because it gives us the hero of the story. We need the hero of the Bible. Look, a lot of people, a lot of people and a lot of like modern, like non-denominational type churches, like a lot of people will make the mistake of reading stories about, about Moses redeeming God's people or David slaying the giant, right? And they'll interpret them as if they're all about you right? The point of their sermons are, look what they did, right? Like, think about your giants that you need to slay, right? Look what they did. And look, if I, if I do these things too, if I have that kind of faith, if I'm like David, if I'm like Moses, if I'm like Abraham, then God's going to bless me. And look, there are some instances 
where we can maybe pull an analogy there. But if we have the kind of lens that Jesus tells us to have, a Christ-centered lens of the scriptures, that suddenly the way that we look at the scriptures is, is not look what David did, but look at what a mess David is. Look at what he did imperfectly. I could never do that perfectly, but there's one who did. And if I surrender my life to him, and if I abide to him, then he will do great things in me and through me. See, the point of the scriptures is to show us not how awesome we can be, but how awesome our Savior is. That's the point from Genesis to Revelation, right? Lastly, we need the transformation of the Bible. We need the transformation of the Bible. The Bible does a transforming work on us. In verse 19, he emphasizes that if you surrender your life to this great God and King Jesus, then he will transform your life. In verse 19, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he says, look, hey, if you do want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then take the word seriously and, and live it out. Live it out. But don't just live it out anyway. Live it out as someone who's been transformed by grace. Right? Verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. By the way, that's bad news for us. All right? That's bad news for us. Because he mentions the Pharisees and the scribes because of their reputation. <laughs> they were like the poster boys of righteousness within Judaism. <laughs> and so Jesus is taking what at the time these people were the greatest example of religious performance. And Jesus was saying, hey, look, unless you outdo those guys, the guys who are known for their religious performance, unless you one-up them, unless you outdo them, you don't even have a shot at the kingdom. Right? How discouraging is that? So what's he getting at? It's important to recognize that the disciples he's talking to, <coughs> the disciples he's talking to, they're fishermen. They're not religious heroes. They're not known for their religious performance. They're just like us. They're constant failures at playing the religious game, just like us. And so what is Jesus getting at? Jesus is getting clever here. He's confronting the religious game altogether. He's confronting the way that we like to play religious games. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were like the religious elite. They were like the family values people of their day. They were the moral majority of their day. But the problem is that they were obsessed, too obsessed with their outward appearance. They were too obsessed with their religious performance. They cared more about how they were viewed on the outside than how they really were on the inside. And look, Jesus says, look, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, because the gospel has so transformed you, because you truly know and understand and savor the grace of God for you, then that's going to take you beyond the religious righteousness of the Pharisees. You see, in the next chapter in Matthew 6, the, he, Jesus talks about how, how the Pharisees, the only reason that they give to the synagogue is to be honored among men. And the only reason they pray is so that they can be heard by men. 
So Jesus' point here is, look, the person who's following religion only, the person who's only concerned about meeting these outside religious standards, and the person who's following Jesus genuinely couldn't be any more different. But on the outside, they both pray, they both give, they both seem to submit to the word, they both seem to obey, but they do it in different ways and for different reasons. The Pharisees are concerned about the outside in, but the genuine Christians, the ones whose righteousness out, out, uh, uh, supersedes the Pharisees, they're transformed from the inside out. They're not obsessing over their performance. They're just wooed by Jesus, and he changes them from the inside out. Read these few verses uh, with me from James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, verse 22 to 24, James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And what he's talking about here is um, like mirrors back in James' time uh, in the first century, they were not everyday objects, all right? It was kind of wild for me like when I read about this. Like they're not everyday objects. So, so they were not household objects. They were, they were f- few and far in between, right? And so for that reason, people were generally not all that acquainted with their own faces like we are today, right? It's kind of weird to think about, right? Uh, these people, uh, I mean, these days, like people, people, people love to, to look at their faces maybe too much, right? Like we're too acquainted with what our faces look like. Uh, supposedly the average person in America looks in the mirror like 12 to 15 times a day. I'll be honest, I think that's a low number, right? The disciples that Jesus or that James was writing to here, um, they didn't look in the mirror regularly. They didn't have a bathroom mirror at home. They didn't have a rear view mirror in their cars, a compact in their purse, self-enabled camera, like phone in their pocket. And mirrors weren't smooth back then either. They were distorted because they were typically made out of, out of metal. And so when they did see the reflection, and didn't, it didn't always leave the most lasting impression, they'd walk away and forget the details of their own face. And James is saying, that's kind of what this is like. You forget your own face. He says, look, you gather with church on Sundays, you sing awesome songs with Bible truths in them, you hear uh, an okay sermon for like 40 minutes, and you walk out the door, and because you engaged only your head and not your heart, not your hands, or maybe only your hands, it just doesn't stick. It doesn't actually transform you. We need to read the word, meditate on it, chew on it, Consider how it makes Christ beautiful to us so that it changes our lives, so that we actually do what it says. You know why the Bible calls us to do good works? It's not to earn our salvation. It's not to earn ourselves a seat at the table, right? The Bible's clear about that. So then why do you think there, why are there so many New Testament commands, right? Does God need our good works? No, he doesn't need our good works. Instead, Our good works, by the grace of God, they display the character of God. 
They display the beauty of his gospel to the world around us. That's why we need the transformation of the word in our lives. You see, in Christ, our good works, they tell the world, I was blind, but now I see. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I used to be weary, but now I rest in Christ. I used to mourn, but I've been comforted in Christ. I once despaired, but now I have hope in Christ. I fail, and I fail all the time, but Christ shows me grace, and he gives me strength. I sin all the time, but Christ, the friend of sinners, he saved me, and he gives me new mercies every morning. If you want your family and your friends and your neighbors to know the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, then then show them that he's worth living for. Show them. If you have this me-centered approach to the scriptures, you're going to find yourself consumed, just like the Pharisees, with wanting to do good for God externally, which will either lead to pride because you think you're so good at it, or shame because you're going to inevitably fall short. But if you have a Christ-centered, a gospel-centered view and approach to the Bible, you'll want to do good, not for God, but from God's work in your life. The gospel changes you. It changes you. And it drives you into the world to serve others in love. That's why we need the transformation of the word. To close it up really quick, I want to give you practically uh, just four sort of postures uh, that that we should have when it comes to the Bible. Number one, that we should read the Bible regularly. I mean, if all of the things that we've been talking about the Bible are true, and they are, then man, we should read it regularly. We've got tools and resources to help you do that. Like our church has invested into this audio uh, Bible program through the the Dwell Bible app. How many of you guys have that on your phone, right? Where you can like listen to uh, the audio Bible uh, on uh, in different translations uh, and in different voices. Like, like I like Felix. He's the African dude, right? I like to listen to him with the ambient music in the background because I don't know why. It just it feels authentic to me, right? Uh, but, but we've got all kinds of tools to help you uh, be in the Word regularly. But number two, you also need to read it humbly. Know that there are things that you're going to come across that you're going to say, I don't like that. That convicts me. That challenges me. I wish that weren't there. But read it humbly and say, hey, while I wish that wasn't there, I know because this is God's word that I need it. I needed to hear that. I needed to see that. Number three, read it desperately. Read it desperately. In the words of the psalmist, read it like thirst for him. Thirst for the word, thirst for Christ. The same way that a deer pants for water, our soul longs for him. And so read it desperately, knowing that man doesn't live by bread bread alone, but by the very words of God. And lastly, read it communally. Read it communally. What we mean by that is read it in community right? One of the best ways to understand the meaning of Scripture and to apply it to our lives is when we discuss it in community. 
Now, one form of that is congregational preaching and receiving the word together, like the way that we're doing right now as we're reading and, 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 and walking through the scriptures together. Uh, but another way that that fleshes itself out, maybe in a more intentional way, is the way it is through our home groups, right? Our home groups just uh, launched a couple weeks ago. I don't think it's too late for you to jump in, right? Uh, but for everyone who's a regular congregant here or, or even just a, a guest here, kind of figuring this whole Jesus thing out, uh, we want to invite you to study God's word with us uh, uh, every other week as we gather in our home groups. You see, when we pick up our Bibles, we seek to be fed spiritually, to be nourished in our souls. And so when we pick up our Bibles, let us seek to gaze longer and harder at our Lord Jesus Christ. Every page, every chapter, every verse is all about him. It's always about him. The lover of our souls, the friend of sinners, the savior of the world. It's all about him. And that changes everything. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.